This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. If you take your Bibles and turn to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, what I'd like to do this morning is show you what enduring love is like. The kind of love that I think a man and a woman yearn for, they dream about. It's the kind that uh, satisfies a person's life without a bitter aftertaste. And of course, there are all kinds of other kinds of love that feel good for a moment, but then leave that bitter aftertaste. And since 50% of the marriages in our country today will end in divorce within two years of marriage, I want you to know that the kind of love that we're going to look at this morning is the kind to build a marriage on. It's called enduring love. What does it look like? Well, the poetry that we have before us this morning in the Song of Solomon chapter 2, I think pictures it perfectly. If you'll notice in chapter 2 of verse 8, as this woman is expecting her lover... She says, listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains and leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle. She's tuned in to him as he comes to join with her here this early in the morning. But then after what is for hours of time of interaction together, we come to the end of the chapter, verse 17, and it says, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, that is, The day is coming to an end now. And she turns to him and she says, Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. In other words, go away. The day is ending. We started the day together and we've ended the day together. But what we've enjoyed together are the ways of enduring love. That's what we want to look at this morning. That's why I've entitled the message, A Day in the Life of Enduring Love. Now in chapter 2, We are still in the days of courtship. Do you remember last week as Dan opened the Song of Solomon, he said there are five movements in this book. Two of the movements occur before marriage. One is on the wedding night, and the last two are after marriage. And so today, we are in the second of those two before marriage movements. Which means, by the way, that this message today is not for married people though I'm going to refer to what goes on into a marriage, but really, this particular message today is for single people who are attracted to other single people and are wanting to know how we can build a relationship that will last. This text is for you. You know, I also find it interesting that everything this 3,000-year-old passage of Scripture highlights and emphasizes about real love just happens to be what modern research and psychology have recently discovered about what real love is, is it does its polling and its data and its statistics and all the things you hear and you see on the cover of Women's Day, ladies, and you buy that, or you see on the nightly news, things of that sort. It's all here. Last week we mentioned a bunch of books that we have as resources for our series here in the Song of Solomon, and one of those was the book, The Triumphant Marriage. It's by Neil Warren a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and in it he interviews a hundred extremely successful couples, and the book is based around the things he learned. In fact, he calls it the ten secrets of success that he finds from these couples who really made it over a lifetime. 
Well, I looked through that, and then I looked at my text, and when I got at the end of my text, I discovered that four of those ten secrets are here this morning for us. God knew that all along. Modern research can find what God has already built into our universe, and that is the secrets of enduring love. Now, our passage begins around the first of those four secrets, and it's what I call the mystery of chemistry. And it is a mystery, isn't it? What is love? We know a lot about it. It turns our world upside down when we catch it. And you probably remember that. But why? Why is it that we could start life and suddenly walk into a room and gaze over a sea of people like are here in our auditorium and somehow, in some mysterious way, one catches our eye? And we fixate on that one. And suddenly our whole world is changed and flowing through our veins as we stare into that one comes this mystery called chemistry. It's obvious when I open the text here in chapter 2 that our two young lovers have it. Notice how it starts, verse 8. Listen, she says, my beloved, behold, he's coming. Now, she doesn't know he's coming except for the fact that she's had her nose pressed against the window all night waiting for him. She's excited She's locked in. And you know, when you're locked in on somebody, you can find them almost anywhere. That's the way she is. She says, here he comes, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. And I couldn't think but laugh. You know, here's this guy. He's probably college educated. And he's leaping on the hills and stuff. You do foolish things like that. When you're in love with somebody, you sing these love songs to one another and you say these words to one another that you'd never use outside the context of that. But she's... And he are involved with one another. And so here he comes and she says, my beloved is like this gazelle. He's a young stag. He's a hunk. He really is. <laughs> and then he comes and he gets to the house and he says, behold, he's, he's standing beside the wall and he's peering through the windows and looking through the lattice. He's playing these little love games, trying to draw her out, just like you did one day. It's called the mystery of chemistry. I need to ask you, Marys, do you remember when you, the love bug bit you? Can you think back that far? When this mysterious chemistry flowed effortlessly through your veins? I do. In fact, I have pictures here this morning to prove it. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is 30 years ago. I'm 16 years old. This young lady next to me, Sherrod, is 15. We've been dating for about a year, and we've just started to go steady. And uh, I want you to know that though I'm sitting there looking pretty cool and collected, inside my chest, my heart's beating really fast. Because I've discovered that there is this mystery called chemistry that I could never get out of my system. And it began to flow about this time. You know, not long after this, I graduated and went off to college and left share it in high school, and this brings us to picture number two. And um, I want you to know the context here is she's missing me. I'm in college, and uh, she's supported here by two of her best high school friends, and they're continuing the love visual. The, uh, before the picture, the altar of the young stag who's in the background, you see. <laughs> And I take the V sign they're making there that the chemistry's still flowing. 
The next year, my uh, young love joined me in college. That brings us to the next picture. And, <laughs> you know, college was a lot of fun for us, and we enjoyed the fires of chemistry, and except for a year where we had some struggles in our relationship working out some things, it was a wonderful experience together. But the best of all pictorial proofs to prove to you that we had this chemistry is the one that Sherrod sent to me when she was in Florida, and this says it best. <laughs> wow! Yeah. That's called chemistry. And that's why young men climb mountains and leap over hills. That's always why they're, they drive their cars fast. Yeah. And they take cold showers and things like that. It's called chemistry. But now listen to me, okay? And you might even write this down because it would be important. The most significant thing that you need to know about the mystery of chemistry is that it doesn't last without refueling. It doesn't last without refueling. Let me show you a final picture. Uh, I'm 22 years old here. We've just gotten married. And uh, I know it looks funny that the faces of the couple next to us are blanked out, but that's for anonymity's sake. This uh, couple happens to be two of my closest friends. The young lady that's next to Sherrod there was uh, my next-door neighbor. And the guy on the end was my very best friend, who's now a pediatric specialist in Texas. And they met about the same time that we did. They had the same chemistry that we had. They dated the same amount of time that we did. They married at the same year that we were married, but they're no longer married. When I talked to Jeannie about that during the midst of that terrible time of separation, I remember her saying to me, you know, I just don't know anymore. And I don't love him anymore. And what I discovered in that moment with my best friends is that this mysterious chemistry that came on us so fast can just as mysteriously go. Go. And what's left? You may be surprised to know that in a relationship there are two types of chemistry. There are. There's this mysterious kind that I've been talking about that starts a relationship, but I want you to know there's another kind of chemistry. It's called the intentional kind. It doesn't start a relationship, but it sustains a relationship over a lifetime. In Neil Warren's book, uh, The Triumphant Marriage, he says this, he says, the most shocking thing that you may read in this book is that chemistry between two people is responsive to the processes over which they have control. That's right. You can make chemistry happen. Did you know that? You say, but how? Listen, you can make it happen, and I'm going to move slow through this explanation, by willfully, okay, did you hear that? By willfully, which means not by pleading, not by nagging, not by reminders, not by manipulation, not by coercion, not by doing it because of those things, but simply by being willing on your own to seek to satisfy your, your mate's primary needs in valid ways that are meaningful to them. Did you hear that? 
by willfully seeking to satisfy your mates' primary needs in valid ways that are meaningful to them, not you, to them. When a man or a woman freely initiates meeting a need like that in ways that are meaningful to the person they're initiating towards, you know what you get in that relationship? Intentional chemistry. But there's a converse to that axiom, and it's this. When your mate has to ask for it, when your mate has to plead for it, when your mate has to pressure you for it, or worse, when he or she struggles to make it clear to you, this is what I need. And they make a valid request in a way that requires of them tremendous transparency and maybe even courage. And then you ignore it or, or put it aside as insignificant or what's worse, throw some tokens at it. Then what you do is you insult your mate at the most basic level of their needs. And you slit the wrist of chemistry. And what began as leaping and bounding and climbing mountains dies a slow, painful death. Listen, listen. Chemistry does not last without refueling. Did you know... Or do you know your mate's primary needs? You know what they are? Have you identified them? And do you see that as not something they're demanding of you, it's just something that is in them that rather than asking for it, you need to be seeking to meet it willfully because you want to. When they have to turn it into a demand, the relationship begins to disintegrate. And you say, well, what are some of those needs? Well, everybody may have some special ones, but we know from research and all the things that social scientists have done that we know what a lot of them are. In fact, Willard Harley in his best-selling book, His Needs, Her Needs, after doing interviews with thousands of couples, came up with what he said were the, a man's five most basic needs and a woman's five most basic needs. You know what they are? Let me show them to you. For instance, man's five most basic needs in marriage are this, sexual fulfillment. He's not an animal. He's got that need. It's in him. It's part of the way he loves to be loved and to give love. And a woman who's wise doesn't see that as a demand, but as a calling. He wants a recreational companion who can join him in the things of his life. He wants an attractive spouse. He wants domestic support. He wants admiration for what he does for the family and for the mate. The woman, on the other hand, she has some needs. Primary among these is affection. She wants a lot of affection. And conversation. She's a relational creature, just like Martha said, and she needs to know what's going on in her husband's life. She doesn't need to be guessing at it. She wants to drink deeply at the well of his soul. She wants honesty and openness. There's nothing that injures a woman more than to find out her husband's deceiving her in any way. She wants deep transparency. She wants financial support. Doesn't matter if she works. She wants to know, men, that you... You are committed to financially providing for her and you're going to protect her for life. She wants a family commitment from you. Not just work. She wants the balance between work and family. And when a mate on either side willfully receives those not as demands the person's making, but as a calling to satisfy my mate, 
when they willfully look for meaningful ways that are valid to that person to meet those needs, you know what happens in the relationship? Chemistry is born. A lot of chemistry that lasts a lifetime. It's the way of enduring love. There's a second secret, and it's found in verses 10 through 17. And here, men, I'm going to speak primarily to you simply because that's what the text does. So I'm not picking on you in any way. But what is found in these next few verses is what is called a day of communication. Look at verse 10. The woman says, My beloved responded and said to me, and now the man speaks. He says, Arise, my darling. She's inside the house. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. See, the young guy here is asking the young woman to join him for a day together. But specifically, as we'll find out as we move through this text, a day of communication. Now, I have to ask myself because I think, gosh, he's spending a whole day? Doesn't this guy have a job? Huh? Doesn't he work? Or if it's Saturday, isn't there a lawn to mow? <laughs> a car to fix? A ball game to go to? Who has the time to spend a whole day communicating? And the answer is, <laughs> those who want to stay in love. That's who. Those who understand the primary calling of their marriage is to the person sitting next to them. That's who. You see, unhurried, uninterrupted time together which is instinctive for lovers before marriage, is something that must be maintained after marriage if the marriage is going to be fueled with enduring love. It doesn't bother a woman that her husband works a lot necessarily to earn a good wage or he coaches their son's team or shoots part at the country club or builds a deck on the house or works on the car. It only bothers her if that time takes her time away with him. And then not only does it bother her, she begins to resent it and become angry because of it and nag him through it. You see, a woman took his name for a reason. It's because she wants him. You know, over time, many marriages begin to look a lot like the two-minute drill in football. You know, when they're trying to score within the last two minutes, and just it's called the hurry-up offense. And a lot of times a marriage begins to look, especially after marriage, in the season where there's children and career and recreations and all that, it begins to look like the hurry-up offense of a professional team. And you hear words and phrases not of unhurried, uninterrupted communication, but you hear things like, I've got to get out of town, I'll call you from the airport. I've only got 30 minutes, so let's make this quick. I've got another meeting to go to, I'm sorry, but we just can't talk about it. I can't get into this right now. That sound familiar? It's the language of the hurry-up marriage. Did you know that most communication problems today in marriage are caused by a man's job? By an overcrowded schedule? By exhausting routines that sap every sensation of life and energy away from him so there's nothing left to give to the one he's pledged his life to? It's a battle we're going to have to engage. It's a reality every man has to face. Somewhere along the line he's got to say, enough! 
enough. Arise, my darling, and come along. Let's turn off the TV tonight. Let's go for a walk. Let's sit on the porch. Let's go on a date. Spend the whole evening, just the two of us, talk about us and our dreams and our directions and our feelings. Let's go on another weekend getaway. Not a weekend getaway, another weekend getaway. So for the next two days, it can just be you and me so that we can do the things that we need to do, that we desperately need, and that's unhurried, uninterrupted time together. I want you to look at verses 11 through 13. He says, For behold, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone, and the flowers, they've appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle doves has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. So arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. You have to ask yourself, well, what is he saying here? Well, he's saying the obvious. He's saying it's springtime. It's spring and it's beautiful out here. It's a wonderful moment. So let's you and me not let this go by. Let's take advantage of it and let's add this experience into our bag of experiences together. Now, what's the point? Listen, here's the point. Enduring love always will maximize special experiences together, not apart, together. It'll seek those experiences out. It'll sacrifice for those experiences. It will put away things, the purchase of another thing, in order to have time to experience life together. One of the smartest things I ever did occurred the first year we were married, when you saw that picture up there. The church we were attending was going to take a tour, a trip, to France and Egypt and Israel. Now, we just got married. We had nothing, nothing. We lived in an apartment that you could turn around and touch every room. It was that tight. And we had a little old car that was about to go out. And Sherrod was teaching school and I was working. But we decided that it was experiences we wanted to have together. So every month, dutifully, we lived on my pitiful little paycheck and took hers and put it in the bank with a commitment not to touch it. Month after month, for 12 months, so at the end of that time, we could go on that trip. You know, I look back in the early years of our marriage, it's the smartest thing we ever did. You know, we sit around some nights talking and inevitably that trip comes up with the friends we went to and the experiences we had and how much fun it was to see the world, which then inspired a chemistry in us to see the whole world. And over the last 25 years of marriage, we've gone together and seen it all. And that more than a new car or another piece of furniture means more to me than anything I can tell you. I compare that with my mom and dad whose relationship together took them in their whole lifetime no further than Dallas, Texas. And that was just to see me play against SMU. I remember my mom so well-educated and cultured. She was one of the finest Southern women I can ever imagine. And she would sit there in her books and sometimes we'd sit there together on the couch and she'd open it up and say, you know what I'd love to do someday? I'd love to go to New England and drive through those fall colors. 
And every year she would dream about that. But she never went. Ever. There was always another thing to do. There was always trying to advance ourselves a little bit more economically and buy the next new car and the bigger house. She never got there. You know, this is my 25th wedding anniversary this fall. And I'm taking my wife to New England to see the fall colors because we're not going to miss it. You see, the marriage that is wise lives in the spirit of verse 11. See, he says, behold, winter's past. Let's get on with it. Let's go. Let's experience life together. And it's the wise husband who comes to his wife and says, for behold, it's our anniversary. Not, is it our anniversary? <laughs> Let's go. Let's do. I've got this special experience for you. For behold, I've saved some extra money. Let's go. For behold, you've always wanted to do this. We don't need that. Let's go and let's drink deeply together the experiences of life. That is a secret for enduring love together with a man and a woman. Look at verse 14. He says, oh, my dove in the cleft of the rock. See, she's still inside the house and she's not sure she's going to come out here. She's kind of hiding from him. In the secret place of the steep pathway. Let me see your form. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet. And your form is lovely. He's saying, don't hide from me. Let's talk. I don't know, maybe they've had a fight or something. But he's calling her out for this day of communication together to spend it in the springtime. He wants to get deep with her and get deep into her life and her feelings, which I find really interesting, by the way, since the number one complaint in marriage is that my husband won't talk to me. He grunts, he mumbles, but he doesn't share himself with me. He doesn't share what's going on in his life. And because of that, I'm over there anxiously sitting there going, what's going on in his life? What's he thinking? Is it me? Is it our marriage? Have I done something wrong? It's all this confusion and vain imagination that goes through a woman's mind when her husband doesn't open his soul. It's like in the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Men, these Martians, they get problematic and they go into their little caves and they just sit there to think it out. And the woman's out there wringing her hands. What's going on in there? It's a lot like the description of this couple in Dave Berry's book called uh, Elaine and Roger. Elaine and Roger have been dating and seeing each other for a number of months. And one evening when they're driving home, a thought occurs to Elaine, and without thinking, she says it out loud. Do you realize that as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there is a silence in the car. To Elaine, it seems like a very loud silence. She thinks to herself, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's, he's been feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Roger is thinking, six months. And Elaine is thinking, but hey, I'm not so sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I'd have time to think about whether I really want us to keep going the way we are, moving steadily toward, I mean, where we are, where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level? Are we headed towards marriage, towards children, towards a lifetime together? Am I ready for this level of commitment? Do I even know this person? <laughs> and Roger is thinking, February. <laughs> which was right after I had the car at the dealers. Which means, well, let me check the odometer. Whoa, I'm overdue for an oil change. And Elaine is thinking, 
He's upset. I can see it on his face. <laughs> Maybe he has sensed, even before I sensed it, that I was feeling some reservation. Yes, I bet that's it. That's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. And Roger is thinking, and I'm going to have them look at the transmission again, too. <laughs> and Elaine is thinking, see, he's angry. And I don't blame him. I'd be angry, too. I feel so guilty putting him through this, but I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. And Roger is thinking, they'll probably say it's only a 90-day warranty. And Elaine is thinking, maybe I'm too idealistic, waiting for a knight to come up riding on his white horse. Roger, Elaine says out loud. What? says Roger, startled. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says, her eyes beginning to brim with tears. Maybe I should never have, I feel so, and she breaks down sobbing. What? says Roger. I'm such a fool, Elaine sobs. I mean, I know there's no knight. I really know that. It's silly. There's no knight and there's no horse. There's no horse, says Roger. <laughs> you think I'm a fool, don't you, Elaine says. No, says Roger, gladly to finally know the correct answer. <laughs> it's just that, it's that I, I need some time, Elaine says. And there's a 15-second pause while Roger, thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response. Finally, he comes up with one that he thinks might work. Yes, he says. <laughs> Elaine, deeply moved, touches his hand. Oh, Roger, do you really feel that way, she says. What way, says Roger? <laughs> that way about time, says Elaine. Oh, says Roger, yes. Elaine turns to him, gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very nervous about what she might say next. <laughs> Thank you, Roger, she says. Thank you, says Roger. <laughs> then he takes her home and she lies on her bed, a conflicted, tortured soul, and weeps until dawn. Whereas Roger goes back to his apartment, opens a bag of Doritos, and turns on the TV and watches a rerun of a tennis match between two Czechoslovakians he doesn't even know. <laughs> a real man, a real man, knows the value of two words. Let's talk. Let's talk. Now, I want you to look at verse 15. It says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyard while our vineyards are in blossom. Now you go, well, what does that mean? And a lot of commentators ask the same question. <laughs> what does it mean? But the most plausible explanation is this. The young man here is calling for them to deal with the troublesome aspects of their relationship. Look at verse 15 with me. Which are the little foxes. Those are the troublesome aspects of their relationship. And he's calling for them to catch them before they get out of hand and ruin the love life that they have, which is here symbolized by the vineyard, which is about to produce fruit. We want to get the foxes out of our relationship so it'll bear fruit. Demonstrating what I think is another major feature of enduring love. Write it down. It's called proactive problem solving. There's great wisdom here, men and women. There really is. Those troubling, nagging little issues that bother you before marriage... You know, he's Pentecostal, you're Presbyterian. He's got the over-involved mom, but you've got debt up to your neck. She's the type that she likes to keep everything neat and tidy and have the toothbrushes lined up in parallel lines. And you're the type that, well, your clothes look like you just rolled a hand grenade in there and it blew up the whole apartment. And you want to talk about those things, but you keep saying to yourself in the blush of first love, we'll talk about it later. We'll just shut these little foxes up in here and we'll deal with them after we're married. 
But you know what little foxes look like after they're married? Like big gorillas. <laughs> and they can ruin a relationship when it's not dealt with early. The little things. So knowing what we know about little things that any good couple knows needs to be proactively addressed. I find it interesting that we allow our young people today, in this country of all places, that we allow our young people the freedom, if you want to call it that, to make a lifelong commitment to one another without having to first spend some time working on the little foxes in their relationship. You know it's much harder to get a driver's license than it is a wedding license. Anybody can go pick up a wedding license. It takes nothing, no preparation, no communication, no fox hunting. Nothing. With all the calls and debate about sex education, isn't it interesting that we import all of that into our schools to teach kids how to copulate but not how to communicate? Doesn't say anything about communication. Where do you get a life education of relationship? It's not there. It's a void in our country and it does more damage than all the other things combined. If you look on your outline, men, you'll notice down at the bottom, and I've got to move this up, it says an application. My application is only this. There is no preparation that's easy, and there's no preparation that you can do in a weekend. One of the things I'm excited about inviting you into the men's fraternity is because it's life application. It'll tell you more about you men. It'll open up more doors into your heart. It will help you understand how to interact with another woman and why you do that and why you should be motivated and help you find the motivation for that than anything that I know. And if you're not in it, and if you haven't been through it, I'd really encourage it. Don't let this season go by when you have a unique opportunity to develop you, but also to give you the tools for enduring love. That's what that's all about. Every enduring love relationship learns to catch the foxes while they're little. Because if you don't, a problem becomes a threat when a fox grows up. And you need to nip the threat in the bud. That's why he talks about during the time of blossoming so that the relationship can go ahead and bear fruit. And this young man is demonstrating really an advanced level of masculinity because he's being proactive, not passive, in addressing the problems of their relationship so that they won't become threats later on. What a unique feature of enduring love. Now you might imagine if you had a man like that, you would be, as a woman, extremely responsive to that man. And that's exactly what this young woman is. If she's responsive, notice verse 16, she cries out, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And he pastures among the lilies. Not his flock, that's not in the original. It's just, he pastures among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. She knows she's got the real deal here. And so she says, listen, he's mine. She doesn't want to let him go. She wants to keep this guy. And she's saying, and I want him to know I'm his. And I want us to spend this day together until the shadows say the day is ended. And she allows him, as it says there in verse 16, to pasture among the lilies. And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, that's an interesting phrase because back in verse one of chapter two, she says she's the lily of the valley. And she's asking this, she's making the statement that he's feeding among the lilies. And my guess is that what it's kind of expressing in a poetic kind of way is that 
they're going to now feed on one another's lives. They're going to have a glorious day now that they've come together for the rest of the day till the end of the day, and they're going to have this glorious day of interaction and passion together. A passion that will build and build until night begins to fall, and when she begins to realize that this passion, which now is so positive, needs to be protected. It doesn't need to go any further. So she tells him it needs to be restrained and he needs to go home. That's why she turns to him and says, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle and leave. Leave. Does she want him to leave? No. But for the love to stay positive, for them to capture the best of what's in their relationship, it's time for him to go. So she says, go now. You know, every pre-married couple, every seriously dating couple will always face after a day of wonderful communication the tension of managing love and passion. They know they're being drawn. They can feel it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a healthy feeling to feel this, this, this movement of being drawn to one another towards physical intimacy. But not now. And she respects those boundaries and so does he. So he turns and he leaves. Now that always leaves both people in a sense of frustration. They want to embrace and enjoy one another fully and completely, but not before the marriage. But she's left, and that's where we move into chapter 3, with these feelings, these strong, intense feelings, which are not wrong, they're positive. But she also surrounds them with conviction. And I want you to notice that by reading with me verse 1. She goes home and at night she's in her bed and evidently... A number of days passed by, so this happened night after night. But now they're separated. And night after night, she says, I sought Him, whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but I did not find Him. We couldn't finish the relationship. You can't during that dating phase. After having such a glorious day, she wants Him fully and completely. But remember, her conviction sent Him home. Now, as night after night passes in separation, like any person on the front end of marriage, she begins to wonder, was that the right thing to do? What if he doesn't come back? What if I lose him, this incredible man? What happens if I lose this man? And suddenly she begins to doubt herself and her convictions. And anxiety arises. And she struggles with what I call here the demons of insecurity, which is always part of a woman's life with a man because she's giving herself to Him. And I wonder if she begins to think, did I do the right thing? And so what follows in verses 2 through 4, that's not real. She's on her bed dreaming and interacting and debating with herself. We're inside her head now, but she's wondering if she did the right thing or if she's going to lose this man by withholding the passion. So in verse 2 it says, I must arise now and go about the city and the streets and the squares and I must seek Him whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but I did not find Him. And the watchman who makes the rounds of the city found me and said, Have you seen Him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found Him whom my soul loves and I held on to Him and I would not let Him go until I brought Him into my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. And yeah, you're right. It's the bedroom. And she's thinking, should I have gone that far? I love the Bible here. It is so realistic. 
Because as virtuous as this young lady is, and she is, she is contemplating whether she should have offered herself sexually to this young man in order to make sure that she doesn't lose him. And I want you to know, there are many, many, many young women who are tempted to compromise this same way for the same reason, in order to keep her man. But I want you to know, it doesn't stop before marriage. You see, after marriage, she's going to be tempted again in the same way because insecurity can haunt a woman. And so she gets tempted to give in when he gives in himself to workaholism. Or his anger becomes out of control. She's tempted just to let it go by, just kind of step aside and let him just vent. Or he becomes irresponsible and he doesn't meet the needs of the family commitments that he's made. But she gives in. And you know why she gives in? Because she's afraid. She's afraid she might lose him. And he makes these excessive demands on her life. And she goes ahead and she just does them without complaining, but the whole time she's hurt, but she gives in. You know why she gives in? Because there's a fear there. Or his excessive drinking, or his excessive addiction to recreational habits that takes him again and again away from the home. And he keeps doing it, and she says nothing. And you know why? There's a big reason why. Because she's afraid. She's afraid of losing him. And it's that insecurity of loss that becomes the breeding ground from the dating all the way through marriage, the breeding ground for all kinds of unhealthy compromises in a woman's life. So there she is, tormenting herself. But then, in verse 15, or verse 5, I should say, the, the words of this young man that he spoke back in verse 7 of chapter 2 come back to her. And they come back to her to reassure her that she doesn't need to think this way. Look at verse 5. It says, and this is the man speaking, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love. I'm not going to let you do that. We don't need to do that until it's time. That's what the phrase means, until it pleases. Until it's the right time. Remember, I told you that back in verse 7. And I want to, you to hear that again. You don't have to do that for me. I'm yours. Don't think that way. This man's tender words, listen guys, of conviction is the best way to stir passion in a woman's life. Because it steadies her heart at this critical time when a lesser man, a selfish man, would prey on those insecurities. Guys, if you're not married here, I want you to hear this. A real man will never demand sex for security. He'll never demand that. And a wise married man will learn the art of reassurance to his wife throughout their life, even when she doesn't ask for it. Imagine you're eight months pregnant, ladies, and you're sitting there and your husband comes in, wraps his arms around you, plants a big kiss on you and says, you know what? You are incredibly beautiful. Now you're not going to believe that, but you're so glad he believes that. And it reassures because you know what you're wondering about? You're wondering, how does he feel about me? It's a wise husband who tells you. It's a wise man who comes into his wife and out of left field offers her the tremendous and gracious and tender comment of saying, honey, did you know this? That I am never, ever going to stop loving you. 
I know we've had some tough times. I'm never, ever going to stop loving you. I'm in this forever. That's a wise husband. One of my best habits, and I only have a few, so when I get a chance to share them, I'm going to share them. <laughs> but one of my best habits that I learned a long time ago is when Sheridan and I are arguing, and when we have a fight, or when there's trouble in our relationship, and words get heated, and some things get exchanged, and we feel alienated, I've always learned, even with clenched teeth, to finish the argument this way. I am totally committed to you, no matter what. I may not like you, <laughs> but I'm still going to say it, and I'm going to say it as a discipline of my commitment to you as a man. I'm committed to you forever. And it opens up a whole world because it allows her to freely express even her anger feelings towards me or whatever, knowing that she doesn't have to withhold anything for fear of losing me, because she's not. I'm in it for life. In enduring love, feelings of insecurity are managed, listen, listen, by words of conviction that tell a woman over and over again throughout her life, you are safe. You're safe with me. Which brings us to point four, the Christ connection. The last secret. Now, this is not explicitly stated in the text, but since the text was written by God through Solomon, I think we can say this. Neil Clark in his book makes this noteworthy remark. He says, I've noticed that when people pursue God, a God who is love and the source of love, this quest almost always leads to emotional and relational wholeness between them. You see, it takes three to make a marriage. And the more God humbles me, the more God breaks me, purifies me, convicts me, rightens my perspective because I trust His Word, the more He delivers me and blesses me and gives me direction for my life and I heed it, the more that happens in me. Not doesn't matter about her. The more that occurs in me, the more I find a wealth of assets to love her with. It's the Christ connection. I've learned that the best that I have given my wife in marriage over these years <laughs> is only what Christ has given me first. So let me ask you, does your love life have Jesus Christ at the core of it? I want you to know, in all honesty, with all I've ever seen, and by the way, the research points this out. I'm talking about secular research. The best lovers in our land are those who are connected in an authentic way with Jesus Christ. So what is enduring love? It is a love with chemistry, the kind mysteriously seated by God and the kind intentionally seated by you. It is a love with lots of proactive communication. It is a love with conviction and with reassurance. And it is a love inspired by Jesus Christ who first wants to change us and then He wants to use us to love another person. That's the best. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for how You preserved it and given it to us so that we might have relationships that last. They don't 
exploit. They last. And Lord, thank You for Your Word that encourages us and now open our heart to realize, to know, and to embrace that the more we receive from You, the more we have to give away. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.